When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you breaking news, biggest stories and all the insight and analysis that you would expect from us on Global Football. It's Monday, which means news as always, and uh, we have quite a menu today for everyone. Um, Duncan Castles joins me as ever, the transfer guru, and he's got some very, very interesting uh, uh, information about Kylian Mbappe, the PSG and France centre forward, who recently hinted that he could leave the French champions. But it seems that that may have been a bargaining chip, Duncan. Yeah, so well, Kylian Mbappe caught um, a lot of people by surprise when he was uh, named uh, Young Player of the Year and Player of the Year um, at the end of season French league ceremonies and, and decided to, to go up and say it's um, it's perhaps time for greater responsibility. I hope that it will be with PSG. That would be with great pleasure or maybe elsewhere with a new project. Um, and since then, we have had intense uh, an intensification of the speculation that uh, Real Madrid uh, might uh, take Kylian Mbappe, a, a player who Zinedine Zidane um, values greatly, um, or that some other uh, superpower would try and take him away from Paris Saint-Germain. Um, what I'm hearing from people close to Mbappe is that uh, his plan is not to move this summer. It is to... Um, ensure that going into next season, he is regarded as being the most important player at Paris Saint-Germain. He feels he has earned that status with his performances on the field, that he's surpassed Neymar in his importance to the team, um, scoring 32 goals in 28 uh, league appearances for the, the French champions last season. And now he wants it solidified. The briefing I have is that he wants to be guaranteed to play as number nine as the central striker at Paris Saint-Germain ahead of any of the other options including Cavani and uh, Neymar who doesn't play there very often but he wants that position to himself. Um, he wants to get to take the penalties. Um, he was close to winning the golden boot last season um, with that, that uh, very high return he had. Um, however, he feels that had he been allowed to take penalties um, rather than have those uh, given to other players in the team, he could have won that trophy and uh, and further um, increased his status in the world game. He also, interestingly, um, wants the formation at Paris Saint-Germain to change. I'm told he wants to be played as number nine in a 4-4-2 shape, which um, I think not coincidentally was the shape where he burst into prominence uh, with AS Monaco um, when he uh, was part of that team that reached the, the Champions League semi-final, knocking Pep Guardiola's Manchester City out in the way. 
Um, and I think he his his consideration is that's the, the system that works best for him. Uh, and he thinks that uh, it would be the system that works best for Paris Saint-Germain. Um, it's a fascinating set of demands. Um, it shows an incredible amount of self-confidence from a player that young. I think it's very um, representative of, of the way modern football is going in that the superstars of the game um, not only are paid more, uh, not only do they have more prominence, media prominence, more commercial uh, revenue potential than they've ever had before, but I think they're more powerful in their teams than ever before. You see that with Lionel Messi um, and the way he has uh, uh, shaped the way Barcelona play and shaped decisions on coaches and, and teammates. You see it with Cristiano Ronaldo um, at Real Madrid. Um, his decision to leave uh, because Real Madrid did not uh, were not prepared to pay him the wages he felt he merited as the as the best player in the world. Um, you see Cristiano Ronaldo with the Portugal team, as um, as our friend Sergio Cucinis explained um, on Friday, the way the team is, is shaped to get the be- the best out of him. Um, and I think you definitely see it with Neymar, um, and I think Mbappe is going down that line too of uh, of of. At a very young age, um, saying, I am the best player in this club. Um, and I expect, uh, if you want to retain me at this club, I expect you to set up the team in a, in a way that gets the best out of uh, my abilities. Um, I think it's also reflective of the difficulties of Paris Saint-Germain as a football club. Uh, what I'm hearing again and again from people who know that dressing room well, who know the club well, is that the biggest issue the club has is the dressing room. Uh, how fractious the players are, how difficult they are to handle, how um, internal rivalries and je- jealousies are a problem um, and how um, how big a job... Um, Ian's friend Tam Tuchel has in his hands uh, trying to sort them out, trying to get the best out of their undoubtedly huge abilities and uh, and getting them even somewhere close to uh, Qatar's target of winning the Champions League. We did christen them um, FC Hollywood Duncan in the past (laughs) for exactly these reasons. (laughs) For exactly these reasons. And what you said about... um, what Mbappe has demanded, I think is, I wouldn't say it's astonishing, <clears throat> I'd say it's surprising that a player of that age believes that he has the authority and mandate to make such demands. But we've seen over the years, either one player, you mentioned Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, or indeed a, uh, a collegiate of players like uh, the Terry Lampard Drogba Axis during the times of certain managers there, um, the the influence they had with regards to team selection and formation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it is, it's still unusual, especially at a club um, who've invested so much money. I mean, the money om- almost is the root of the problem because that creates the internal strife and friction, as obviously has been the case between Neymar and Cavani. And since Mbappe joined, that's also um, been um, increased. I think what's interesting here, though, as well as the demands, Duncan, is the timing. Because, yes, he made that statement after winning the Player of the Year award for Liga, but it's interesting it comes at a time when Neymar has been injured for the crucial part of the season, the run-in, etc., Champions League games, where he's now injured again, where he's now having problems with regards to allegations made against him, 
um, from a woman in Brazil. He's been stripped of the Brazil captaincy. I mean, talk about kicking a man when he's down. And Mbappe then strolls into the offices at PSG and says, oh, and by the way, I want to be the main man. I would love to be a fly in that dressing room when Neymar comes back for pre-season training, gets wind of what's going on and challenges Mbappe on it and then see what Neymar then decides to do. Because let's face it, he's pretty famous for throwing his toys out of the pram anyway, just for the, you know, for the smallest thing. But this is a direct challenge to his position as the most important player at PSG, the most influential player at PSG. So <clears throat> I don't think Neymar will take that very well. And it won't be Tam Tuchel who gets to sort it out because they'll both go over the, the head coaches and go straight to the owners and say, basically, who's more important, him or me? Because you've got to pick. And if you don't pick me, then I'm off. And that's what's going to happen. Now, the catalyst uh, that that could have on the transfer market, let's say beginning of July when players start to begin to... Because let's face it, we know that um, Neymar's going to be in Brazil probably for the next four weeks recovering from the ankle ligament damage. Uh, he'll probably stay there to support his teammates in the Copa America, which is a home tournament for them. He obviously needs to be there as well in terms of speaking to lawyers regarding these allegations in his personal life. So it will be pre-season before these two come face-to-face and head-to-head on what is going to be fairly explosive uh, kind of um, circumstance, which, as I said, could actually kick the market into something crazy, um, should, and I suspect, Mbappe come out as the winner in this and Neymar puts in a transfer request. Well, the, the timing's important because Mbappe knows that uh, Neymar has been agitating to leave the club pretty much since he got there. He knows that uh, Neymar is again trying to get out this summer, that uh, Barcelona have have proposed um, deals uh, which would involve uh, Ousmane Dembele and or Philippe Coutinho going to Paris Saint-Germain in exchange for Neymar. Um, He, I'm sure, will be aware that for the first time, uh, the Qatar Qatari owners of Paris Saint-Germain are willing to consider selling Neymar if the deal is right for them. Uh, for essentially for the reasons we're talking about here, because Neymar hasn't delivered, um, has been a problem to the club, has been a problem internally in the dressing room, and uh, and there is now a consideration that it would make economic and sporting sense to get rid of Neymar if the right money comes in from a suitor. Um, the question is whether they can get that right money. Uh, and, uh, you know, Mbappe, I think, here is taking advantage of, of that situation to say, well, if you're going to let Neymar go, then I automatically become the most important player to the team. He knows that, that Qatar have no interest in selling him. He knows that he is valued um, more than Neymar to them because of his performances on the field. And, and I think because uh, he has a, a presence in France as a World Cup winner, um, as a young star, um, as a guy who actually delivers on the field that uh, that Neymar doesn't have. So take advantage of that situation when you can to strengthen your position there. Uh, it wouldn't come as a surprise to me if um, while those discussions were going on, um, if his importance was properly recognised by the club, then his, uh, his father and representatives would suggest that that, uh, that the club underline his importance by increasing his salary there and, uh, and lengthening his contract, which 
may not be unattractive to Qatar in that it would give them uh, more hold over the player and uh, and allow them to to try and put uh, talk of him leaving elsewhere, which will continue as long as um, PSG are underperforming in the Champions League and as long as uh, Mbappe's uh, performances on the field uh, follow the same trajectory as they have been doing. So, so that might be the the, um, the final resolution to this is, um, yes, we recognise your importance. Uh, yes, we will improve your, your pay here, um, but you have to give us um, a commitment to stay at the club for longer and, and, uh, and probably the proposal would be a new five-year contract. Well, I'm with you, Duncan. I think that... Um it will be Mbappe who wins this particular battle and I think that we'll see the end of Neymar at PSG. Um, I, I think as well, though, given his his form, his injuries, his personal problems, um, I think it's a difficult one to, to, to judge in terms of the price you'd have to pay and the contract you'd have to give to see if you're going to get value for money by signing Neymar. Uh, I'd like to put out to our listeners, would you sign Neymar for your club? in the current situation, given what it would cost, etc. Cetera, et cetera. There's been a lot of interest in the past from Manchester City, Manchester United. So um, <clears throat> when uh, we come back on Wednesday's podcast with questions answered, perhaps you guys would tell us or ask us if Neymar's good value and would you sign him for your club? I think, I think this is, it's an important factor here, Ian, is that, um, that the, the noises I'm hearing from Barcelona is that they are interested in taking him. They are, they've made these offers. They're prepared to go down that line because they think uh, it would work uh, from a PR perspective and, and it has worked for them on the football field before. That combination of Messi, Suarez and Neymar was exceptional um, and Neymar very much forced his way out there so that there's... Uh, it, it appeals to Barcelona from a football and commercial expect, perspective to bring him back but the, the noises are they would like Neymar to um, take a pay cut to come back. It, he has been pushing for this move. Um, they know he wants out of Paris Saint-Germain. Um, and the, the proposal uh, that they would suggest is, well, show us how much you want to come back here by um, taking a, 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 less, a lesser salary than you, you have in Paris. And I think that can be the complication here is whether Neymar's prepared to go down that line. How desperate is he to get out? Um, we know he wants to get out, but would, will he do it and sacrifice money uh, to go there? Um, so anytime you have deals of this magnitude and you, you're talking, I mean, Neymar's base salary at Paris Saint-Germain is 35 million euros net. Um, you're talking about a very complicated negotiation process and uh, all the more complicated when the other star player at the club he's at is uh, is pu- pushing to um, to be formally recognised as the most important player at the club at the time uh, the, 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 the big star the biggest name, the biggest record signing of, of all time is trying to get out I think from Neymar's point of view going back to Barcelona maybe his only chance of salvation um, however Going back there with his tail between his legs, uh, on less money, and then still in the shadow of Messi is a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. So, but uh, I do think that's a possibility, and I do think that we'll be talking about Neymar, as I said, um, at the end of this month once the teams come back for preseason training, once Neymar comes back from Brazil, and then we'll uh, I think we'll see the fireworks start, <clears throat> and there will be a resolution to this. 
Now, Manchester City are currently looking for resolution to the threat of a transfer ban as well as um, uh, the uh, FFP and FIFA allegations of malpractice. They took the unprecedented step last week of going to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, where, in fact, they've yet to be handed a penalty from UEFA, who have placed it in the hands of their adjudication panel. Duncan, this seems like a really odd move. Does it stink of desperation or does it look to you like this is a massive power play by the owners of Manchester City to throw a, a grenade into the House of Neon? I don't think it's desperation at all. Um, I think we have seen over the last weeks uh, with the statements that Manchester City have been making, with the um, the club directed and published interview that Carlton Barak, the, the chairman of Manchester City and one of the most senior politicians in Abu Dhabi gave um, in which he uh, very deliberately attacked Javier Tebas um, very deliberately used a, a phrase about bringing ethnicity into the conversation as a criticism of Tebas um, and talked uh, uh, it factually and accurately about the um, the uh, transfers and the transfer uh, records and most expensive players that he claimed Manchester City hadn't signed, but they had in in fact signed in previous years. I think all of these things are showing um, the belligerence there is on the Manchester City side, driven by the ownership in Abu Dhabi, that they will win this case, that they will not allow. Um, UEFA to uh, sanction them, uh, will not allow them to kick them out of the Champions League and they will take every step necessary to avoid um, UEFA doing that to them. Um, and this uh, procedural move, um, which is to, to challenge the referral of the investigatory um, chamber to the adjudicatory chamber before a decision has actually been taken by those judges who um, who assess uh, what the UEFA's FFP investigations team has found and decide whether the recommendation for a penalty should be upheld or modified. Um, to do that beforehand, I think, is just it's a symbol of their um, desire to to win this any way they can and to use every route possible. Um, so someone has suggested to them there might be a, an opportunity by taking it to CAS uh, and getting them to throw it out at the first stage. Uh, so they're trying that. From what I understand, there isn't any um, scope within the, the UEFA financial fair play regulations for um, a referral to CAS at this stage of the procedure. And, and that's not surprising because a judgment hasn't actually been taken by UEFA yet. You are absolutely entitled, once UEFA have made their decision, to take that um, decision to Court of Arbitration for Sport and challenge it. And that's been done by many clubs, some successfully, some unsuccessfully. Um, I would expect uh, if CAS throws out this initial attempt um, by Manchester City to have the case um, set aside. Then we will have UEFA's decision, um, whichever way that goes. Let's say UEFA, so judicatory um, chamber, decide to ban Manchester City. I'm 100% confident that Manchester City will then go back to CAS and challenge that verdict. Um, what's interesting here 
is what Manchester City do. Should Cass uphold everything? So if Cass throw out this referral and also um, throw out Manchester City's um, appeal against a ban or whatever punishment UEFA decides to give them, where do Manchester City go next? Um, the, the word has been for many years now, because this was uh, the, the club's strategy, and they initially got into trouble with, with FFP in 2014, is that they will go beyond uh, the Court of Arbitration for Sport and take um, legal action against UEFA in a state court, be that uh, a European Court of Justice, some kind of challenge to competition laws. Um, that has been the threat. Uh, you, there's actually some uh, in the Spiegel reporting on um, these breaches of financial fair play and how uh, City tried to combat them, uh, which came out last year. Uh, there's an email from um, quoted email from one from a club lawyer, a Manchester City club lawyer, Simon Cliff, talking about. Um, the discussions between Caldoun Al-Mubarak and Gianni Infantino, who at that stage was a prominent official inside UEFA. Um, and uh, the, the quote is that Caldoun said he would rather spend £30 million on the 50 best lawyers in the world to sue them for the next 10 years um, than accept uh, a monetary penalty um, for breaching FFP at that stage. Um, it's, that Spiegel reporting makes it very clear that uh, Manchester City considered a range of legal actions, including suing UEFA, including suing uh, the auditors, PricewaterhouseCooper, who were used to assess fair value and sponsorship deals in the, in the uh, FFP assessments. Basically, uh, the, what it's reporting is City were prepared to take it as far as they needed to take it until they won. Um, I did a piece on Sunday um, looking at the limitations there might be on on, um, on Manchester City going down this route. And interestingly, they are parties to um, an agreement between the European uh, Club Association, the ECA, and UEFA. Uh, it's a memorandum of understanding about how um, the, the major clubs in Europe would uh, cooperate with UEFA going forward on Champions League um, and other aspects of, of the organisation of European football. And in that, it commits all the ECA clubs um, to accept that the UEFA financial fair play regulations um, have to be adhered to. And more importantly, it states that um, the clubs accept that the Court of Arbitration for Sport is the sole competent body to decide on sports-related disputes. In particular, disputes related to club licensing and financial fair play, disciplinary matters, to the participation in or exclusion from competitions and to the player release rules, including for provisional or supervisional measures to the explicit exclusion of any state court. So basically, Manchester City, as a member of ECA, has signed up uh, to an agreement, and this this was um, most recently signed in February this year, that they would not that there is no scope to challenge financial fair play regulations beyond the Court of Arbitration 
of sport, i.e. they can't go to the European Union and, uh, and challenge it on on an anti-competition basis. Now, um, that doesn't mean Manchester City and Abu Dhabi won't be prepared to take that on too, but it certainly complicates matters um, for City and Abu Dhabi to have that additional recently signed agreement saying we respect that the sole authorities on these matters are UEFA and if we disagree with UEFA then the Court of Arbitration sport and we can go no further after that stage. Well Duncan, the rumours circulating in the big city law firms in London is that Manchester City have already spent in excess of £10 million on legal advice on this particular case and that uh, certain lawyers at the um, firm where they're uh, spending their money are in Clover, they're, they're billing for lunches, dinners, breakfasts, morning snacks, text messages, because they realise that they've got a bit of money there, which uh, is effectively, uh, does have no end. Um, so it sounds like they are up for the fight. I'd say this, in my experience, this would be, a, if City were allowed, or City did pursue this in, say, the European Court of uh, Justice, which of course has to be <clears throat> somewhat shaky anyway, given uh, the current situation over Brexit and Manchester City obviously being a member of the Football Association of England, um, that could be a complicating factor going forward, is that, well, this is a precedent UEFA or FIFA could not allow to happen. Um, and this is and one of the reasons for that is when John Mark, John Mark Bosman took his case uh, away from UEFA in 2001, I think it was, <clears throat> and won, the whole face of player contracts on the transfer market had to change. And I was present at a FIFA special congress in Buenos Aires in 2001, in which they debated and then come up with the new um, system of registering players and what the ownership of a player's uh, signature stroke uh, um, means to a club regarding sale value and uh, how that player can then negotiate himself in or out of that contract. Now, after that, I know for a fact UEFA and FIFA brought a new legislation which was tougher and tighter to ensure that the um, punishments for any club who either action or threaten to action court um, proceedings outside of court fabrication for sport or indeed UEFA and FIFA's own disciplinary uh, panels and committees would be that they could be banned from all competitions not just European ones but effectively as a member of UEFA, the FA would be told that Manchester City were not allowed to compete in the Premier League should they take action against them outside of the current regulatory bodies so this really is a massive test case um, and how Manchester City approach it and as you said with the belligerence with which they try to pursue it um, it's going to have potentially huge consequences for football, but in the first instance, it's likely to have bigger consequences for the club. Yes, look, I think I think part of the strategy here is um, to scare UEFA into backing down. It certainly appears to be in the way they worked in 2014. Was the idea intimidate, 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 and then we will get an acceptable resolution. Uh, which doesn't damage us going forward. And UEFA is in a susceptible position because the reason this memorandum of understanding exists between the ECA and UEFA is to 
partly to allow UEFA to retain control of the Champions League. I mean, we've talked very recently with Roger Mitchell about um, the way the biggest clubs in Europe are pushing, or some of the biggest clubs in Europe are pushing for a European Super League. There's a question mark over whether the European Super League will be run by UEFA or another body. It could be FIFA. It could be an entirely uh, separate uh, body that's set up um, to organise the league itself. UEFA obviously want to retain control and they have to keep their clubs sweet um, to ensure they do so. Um, therefore, it's not a great time uh, to become embroiled in a, in a legal dispute with one of the more prominent and certainly the most affluent of clubs in, un, under the remit. However, that cuts both ways because um, it's very clear that uh, the other clubs in Europe want to see Manchester City punished for breach breaking rules. When you join a competition like the Champions League, there are a set of rules that everyone is expected to adhere to. Um, the rest of football have been managing their books to uh, ensure they meet with financial fair play. Other, a number of other clubs have been punished um, for uh, breaches of FFP rules. I think in 2015, 16 separate clubs uh, were sanctioned by UEFA at some level, either for breaching FFP or uh, for breaching another aspect of FFP, which is not paying bills on time. Um, therefore, UEFA are under pressure to do something because the other clubs are saying, um, well, look, what's the point of these rules if they only apply to us and they don't apply to uh, one of the clubs with uh, a state owner who is able to put essentially unlimited cash into that club to buy players? So you, so you have to do um, something now. Therefore, where, where does it stand? So Manchester City can threaten and they can hope that UEFA back down um, and they get away with this. And that, I guess that's the ideal uh, scenario for them. If UEFA don't back down, if UEFA um, issue a penalty, uh, for example, a Champions League ban that Abu Dhabi, Manchester City are not happy with, then they go to CAS. If they lose a CAS, then they have a decision. Do you try and bring the whole house down by taking legal action um, on a European Union basis against UEFA. The European Union has already made it clear in various statements that they are supportive of financial fair play and they're supportive of the current structure of the game. So that's a difficult fight to take on. It's also a fight which could see them kicked out of UEFA competitions anyway. As you say, FIFA and UEFA have set their structures up so that they're not uh, the clubs are hugely discouraged against taking legal action against them. And that's a sensible stance to have because otherwise we would see legal action being taken all the time on various matters in football. People would use it as a way of, of, Bad of decisions resolving. Taken. VAR. <laughs> why not? Why not? Exactly, that's, that's what I'm saying. What, this, is a, this is why UF and FIFA have these rules because it's a Pandora's box of potential problems. It would be catastrophic. Clubs who get relegated on a dodgy penalty, clubs who win the yeah. league on a, on a VAR or, or, you know, or the Champions League or whatever could then be quite taken to court except UEFA should be taken to court to say that was unfair and we can prove it. So this is why this is so important because the governing bodies cannot allow anarchy to reign and Manchester City are threatening anarchy. I suspect you're right Duncan they've taken this very very uh, this very strong stance in the hope that it will discourage 
UEFA for punishing them. However, UEFA has got to uphold its own rules, and that's what this is going to come down to. From FFP to fullback inflation. I don't know if you've been out shopping for a fullback recently, but if you have, <laughs> you will have noticed a massive increase in the prices of these guys. In fact, when uh, Bayern Munich agreed to buy Lucas Hernandez from Atletico Madrid, um, it was for £72 million, making him the second most expensive defender in the history of football. Um, over the weekend, and certainly in the coming days, Manchester United will be in negotiations to try and get Aaron Wan-Bissaka from Crystal Palace. Palace, who claim they're not, the player's not for sale, um, have apparently demanded £60 million. Work that one out for yourself. My understanding is that Manchester United offered an initial £32 million with add-ons up to eight for the player, which would make his value £40 million. Still a pretty penny for uh, full-backs, but this is part of a, a, a more and a larger realisation in English football, especially in the Premier League. The full-backs are very, very important in the modern game. And I think that uh, history has said that uh, Premier League clubs, especially the top six, have kind of, in the last 10 years anyway, focused their, um, their bigger investments in the likes of central midfielders and strikers or, or you know, fancy players like um, <clears throat> Angel Di Maria when he went to Manchester United for their own record club fee there. But, Duncan, I don't think it's a surprise. When you think about the importance of Trent Alexander-Arnold and, and Andy Robertson to Liverpool, the way they've come this season, we look at Manchester City who, who spent Fifty million on Kyle Walker, albeit that's not turned out too good, and also Benjamin Mendy as well, <clears throat> and they will again invest in another uh, fullback this summer. Are we are we late to the party with regards to recognising? Because obviously clubs on the continent like Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Bar- well, not so much Bayern Munich, they're just getting the, the hang of this as well. But certainly Barcelona and Real Madrid have been very, very um, sort of uh, careful and indeed uh, invested wisely in fullbacks. Yeah, look, I remember interviewing Patrice Evra just after he'd won the Champions League for the first time with, with Manchester United and, and talking about this issue of how fullbacks were undervalued in the modern game and, um, you know, fullbacks didn't, never won Player of the Year trophies and, and uh, their transfer fees were relatively low. And I remember him laughing at the time and he said, yeah, well, people will work it out eventually and they'll, they'll start paying uh, the, the proper um, price for us and, and down the line Patrice Evra got the biggest contract uh, for a defender at Manchester United um, partly because Manchester United allowed his contract to run down to its, uh, its final year and, uh, and Real Madrid came in for him at the time so he was in a, a strong bargaining position but um, also as a recognition of his importance uh, to the team tactically um, and it's a I think in Patrice's case, he was a he was a captain, a leader, and a, a great dressing room figure. And, and, and Ferguson wanted to keep him, but it's certainly um, the value of, of fullbacks has increased hugely. You talk about Manchester City. I think that that one summer um, when uh, when Guardiola went on the attack about his fullbacks and blamed added I think two years of age to every one of them as he was coming up with the reason why they hadn't won anything in the first season. Uh, and uh, and said you can you couldn't uh, get them running up and down the field in the way 
you wanted with those players. And the response was to break the world record for a fullback in, in terms of transfer fee twice and then add uh, Danilo um, for, I think it was over 30 million euros they paid for Danilo. So, so they spent well over 100, um, 120 million pounds on fullbacks in one summer alone. And uh, as you say, um, not... Uh, fully successful in the sense that I think Benjamin Mendy will stay this summer but he's on his uh, pretty much on his last chance at, at City um, they want to sell Danilo uh, and bring Sean Cancelo in from Juventus um, to put pressure on Kyle Walker um, so so none of those fullbacks for various reasons have been uh, 100% success for them but the importance of the position remains fundamental to the way Guardiola wants to play same at Liverpool. Uh, we talked about how Liverpool are um, a team that sets up with an extremely narrow and very aggressive midfield, um, relies on uh, their quick forwards uh, on the counter-attacks. But when, when they come up against uh, deep defences, it's basically the fullbacks are the guys who... Uh, provide the width um, and provide the quality balls into the box um, from which they, they get a lot of the, their goals in those situations. So, so yeah, Andy Robertson, Trent Alexander-Arnold, fundamental to the, the way Klopp plays. Um, I remember interviewing a, a, a leading sports director a couple of years ago and talking about the Premier League and that was one of the things he identified was that the, there was a very low quality of fullbacks in England compared to uh, other uh, European nations. And he felt that was one of the reasons why English clubs had struggled in, in Champions League competitions um, up until that stage, and, and they had. And so um, maybe his argument is, is um, vindicated by Liverpool's win in the sense that they, they won that. Obviously, the fullbacks were not, by any stretch of the imagination, the only reason for Liverpool winning the Champions League. But the fact that they had such a good fullback combination was certainly fundamental in them getting to that final. Um, so it makes sense uh, for for clubs to want to recruit there. Um, definitely makes sense for Manchester United uh, to want to strengthen a fullback. I'm a bit surprised that they're uh, that it's right back that they that they have so much focus on, given that they signed a very good. Um, uh, attacking fullback in Diego Diogo Dalot last summer, who uh, has the credentials, if developed the right way, to to become a player like Jean Cancelo, um, with that ability to to create. Um, I think in the games we've seen him play for Manchester United, you've seen the quality of his delivery. Um, an absolutely superb crosser of the ball. What he needs to. Um, strengths is, is his defensive side so so going for someone like Juan Bissaka you would think would uh, would damage the pathway for the low um, if you were going to strengthen it at fullback the, the obvious one to strengthen is, is Luke Shaw um, who has been a defensive liability I think essentially his, his entire career um, you've seen the way he allowed his physical condition to drop um, once uh, he'd received plaudits for his performances last season and you saw his game return pretty much to how it had been for several years at Manchester United. Um, I think if, uh, if, if you were looking at that rationally, and I, and I know 
that Ed Woodward hasn't really looked at it rationally. He's wanted to retain Luke Shaw because he's English and because he's one of his own signings and he wants to see him succeed. But if you were looking at that sensibly, you'd take, you'd put Shaw in the market, you'd sell him to another English club and you'd upgrade in that position to a player who has his ability to get up and down the pitch um, when he's fit. And, and pace but also is, is capable of defending but certainly they need to strengthen there uh, and they obviously need to strengthen at centre-back and uh, still uh, no solution um, presented to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in that key position because no matter how um, good you make the fullbacks at Manchester United if you don't improve that centre-back position those fullbacks are going to be under pressure um, your holding midfielders are going to be under pressure your goalkeeper is going to be under pressure and uh, and the defensive problems aren't going to be solved and and also if you if you bring Wan-Bissaka into that defence at present I mean, the, the player's talent is, is obvious uh, his physical capabilities are obvious but what kind of situation does it put a player like Juan Basaka in if he comes into Manchester United as the big money defensive signing this summer um, at a young age with the expectation that he um, resolves or does a lot to resolve defensive problems that, that's, a, that's a difficult um, climate to come into a club and I, I'm not sure that um, he's ready for that at this stage of his career I think you, you touched on that there, Duncan. He's young, he's English, he's currently with under-21s playing in the European Championships. He's an absolute breakthrough season. Uh, this one just passed. He, he did come into the team about a year ago last February um, for a few games. But I think the the, the English and young thing is, is what hyperinflates the price of any player, as we know, um, in this country. Uh, slightly odd, uh, but again, homegrown players rule, etc., uh, etc., et makes it, and also the amount of foreign players that you're on your 25 man squad makes the correlation of any apparently squad slightly more um, difficult in terms of um, how you fit everyone in and get the best quality as well. So I'm not sure he's worth 60 million at this point in his career, but I suppose the idea is that if you, you get him now, then he could be worth you know, twice that in the future. Although the idea of £120 million fullback would be, I think, even a stretch for uh, the football will eat itself type of policy of the Premier League. That was the idea with Luke Shaw when they spent £30 million for him. I, I think when they bought Shaw, he was the most expensive um, teenage defender ever signed by transfer fee. And I think he was the most expensive fullback in the world by transfer fee when they signed him. And the idea would have been uh, five years down the line, uh, look how much the value would have increased. Yeah. Uh, has the value increased in Luke Shaw in, in, those, in that period he's been at the club? Well, the obvious comparison, Duggan, is you've got a World Cup winner in Lucas Hernandez for £72 million to Bayern Munich. If Manchester United pays £60 million for a player who's completed one season in the Premier League at Crystal Palace and came 15th, I think, when they finished, you would wonder what the value really was there uh, if you compare those two. Um, as far as e eating and Luke Shaw's concerned, I think we all know where we stand on that. Um, and uh, if you guys are out shopping and you see a, a very good price for a fullback in Aldi or Asda or wherever it is you do your shopping, please <laughs> please let us know at the transfer window and we'll pass it on to Ed Woodward. 
Duncan, we've talked a lot and obviously there's been a lot of, uh, let's just say, dithering and dilly-dallying over Chelsea and Maurizio Sarri. He's going, well, he's not going, he's been delayed, he's going again and Juventus haven't actually made the offer yet. Uh, I think what's been interesting about this is the lack of news about who's going to be replacing him. Because let's face it, this is one of the top jobs in world football. Now, you broke the story in April about Chelsea's interest in Javi Gracia. You've got an update for us, haven't you? Yes. Um, more about what it will cost to get him out of, of Watford. And I think Watford, from what I can gather, are aware of Chelsea's interest and are preparing themselves uh, in case Chelsea decide to to make that interest real and uh, and bring him in and, and you know as we pointed out Gracia is a very attractive candidate um, to a club who are threatened with a transfer window ban uh, are currently under a transfer window ban although they um, referred that ban to Cass last week the day before um, uh, Manchester City uh, went to Cass. Um, Gracia, Duncan, they, had, they did point out, Duncan, that they're not going to um, dispute the transfer ban being in place this summer. So they've already conceded that. That might be something of a kind of softly, softly approach to Cass and UF as if to say, look, we're appealing it for a reason, but we don't expect not to be punished this summer. Yeah, look, uh, the thing with Gracia, it's not just that he would be able to operate with the current squad and he would do so in a, a non-complaining fashion. He's not a manager who pushes for signings. He's, he feels his, his, his greatest strength is on the coaching ground um, and he feels he can improve any group of players he works with. And he's demonstrated that in the past. He's demonstrated it with Watford. That appeals to Chelsea a lot, as does the fact that he's uncontroversial. Um, he is uh, an amiable man who doesn't bring your club into um, into controversies in uh, in the press room. That's important to Chelsea. Um, from a salary perspective, he'd be relatively cheap. The difficulty here is there would be a big transfer fee involved. As, as we explained at the time, uh, uh, Javi Garcia um, signed a new contract um, what Watford did was to give him a very long-term deal. Um, I think it's an initial four years plus an option of three years. Um, partly as a PR measure to say, uh, look, we've got a track record of, of changing our managers. We have faith in this guy and we're going to stick with him and we have so much faith we're giving him this long-term contract. But in the background was a consideration that they could make money as they make money out of players and that's the, the way the Puzzle family have Watford set up. They could make money out of managers. They just got a big compensation payment from Marco Silva uh, from Everton, even though they'd, they'd already sacked him as manager. Um, and with Gracia, they saw the potential to do the same, i.e. you put Gracia in charge of a good uh, set of players, he delivers good results, bigger clubs want to sign him. They're now in a situation where that might happen. When they signed that new deal, there was a uh, release clause inserted in the contract, um, which would allow Watford to make a large sum of money should um, a bigger club come in from them. I'm told that will be in the region of £15 million uh, or above um, as a starting point for negotiations should Chelsea decide to take him. So that, I think, is the, is the big decision uh, for Chelsea um, if they want 
Garcia as coach, are you prepared to pay a transfer fee of that magnitude uh, for a manager? They've done it in the past when they took Andre Villas-Boas from Porto for a, for a record uh, compensation sum at that point. Uh, would they be ready to do it again? Well, it's Monday's Transfer Window podcast, which means heroes and villains. Uh, Duncan, have you got a villain for us over the last few days of football? Um, I think the villain this week would be Gianni Infantino, um, our favourite from FIFA. Uh, he does look like a villain, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> classic, classic Bond villain. Well, his manipulations of the of the laws of the game are uh, are beginning to take force. We've seen uh, the implementation of the new handball rule. I think we we talked in March on the podcast about how complex and conditional and problematic it was going to be. Um, the the laws actually even more. Um, ludicrous than I expected to be at that stage and if you if you go on uh, the IFAB website and check the rules you'll see it defines um, various conditions for handball and one of the phrases it uses is it is usually an offence if a player touches the ball with their hand, arm, when etc 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 it's the only time in football shows I've ever seen the phrase it's usually an offence yeah there is or it's not isn't it that's usually the way that's usually the way it goes <laughs> Exactly. Um, but more importantly is this idea of unnatural um, hand position. We saw in the Women's World Cup um, a couple of penalties given. Uh, we predicted on the podcast that what you would see is players deliberately kicking the ball against the opponent's arms when it's in, in inverted commas, an unnatural position. I think we've started to see that in the Women's World Cup already. If it's happening there, you will see it in the men's game. Um, I think we are going to have a chaotic season with handballs um, because of the way this rule has been rewritten. Um, so, villain in the week is the man who's um, ultimately in charge of all of that, Chani Infantino. Well, from Bond villain to penalty hero for England, which is not a phrase you hear very often, but my hero for this week has got to be Jordan Pickford for the sheer style, panache and power that he scored his penalty in a penalty shootout in the game that nobody wanted to play in. Um, maybe the pressure was off, but I still I like the idea of a, a, a goalkeeper. I remember um, Peter Schmeichel taking a couple of penalties quite well as well. So a lot of those, indeed, he was quite good in the box on a corner as well, wasn't he, Duncan? I, th- I thought you were going to give it to John Stones for his hat-trick of assists against Holland. Do you know what? It was a, it was a close-run thing. It certainly was. That's about all for this particular edition of the Transfer Window podcast. Um, <clears throat> if you want to continue the debate, and we love when you do, then please get in touch via our official Twitter account, at Transfer Podcast. To do individually with Duncan and I, Duncan is at, at Duncan Castles. I am at Ian, oh no, I'm not Ian McGarry, I'm at Garbo SJ. That would be far too simple. <clears throat> I might change that now. Um, and I'll, if you like the, the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, in fact, the numbers have been peaking brilliantly, guys. We, I, I think it's fair that we should tell you that we, we've we got almost over 150,000 in the last 30 days alone. That shows you how much we're growing. We want to grow more. We want to involve more people. So please get onto iTunes. Give us a five-star review, as many of you have already done. Give something back. It means that we can reach out to the bigger community and continue to grow this particular 
podcast, which we know you love. Now, Wednesday is when we'll be back. It's your questions answered. We'll be putting the uh, normal um, t- tweets out to ask you for them. But I think we've raised a few issues already, which you guys might want expanded upon. If you do, let us know at the usual places. And uh, we will see you on Wednesday. That's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.